Welcome to a CMIA fireside chat with Colonel Oris Babi, discussing lessons learned in the Ukraine war. Uh, what I'm going to talk here about is all the open source, based on all the open source research that I've been doing since last February. Uh, when I started this, and I started writing about the war in Ukraine um, on my Facebook and then later shared it with CMIA more broadly, uh, it was really because a lot of my friends, non-military friends, kept asking me, what's going on? We don't understand from the, the media. And I made at that point a decision to not read any classified material uh, about the war in Ukraine so that there would be a clear firewall between anything I said uh, on Facebook and in public uh, and anything that's classified. And I've maintained that throughout. Uh, what that means in, uh, is that, A, it's an interesting study in the use of OSINT, I think, uh, and the power of OSINT. And secondly, uh, it means that uh, at no point anything I say here is critical of any Canadian analytical work, because quite honestly, I have no idea what they've been saying or what they've been doing. Um, and this is really just any statements I make are my observations on what I've seen overall uh, going forward. Sir, that's perfect. And uh, and as a person who reads your uh, blog on a regular, very, very, very regular basis, I have to say, I think it's quite brilliant, actually. Um, so my first question is, uh, what do you think the biggest lesson is for the Canadian intelligence function related to the war in Ukraine? Um, well, I've got a whole bunch of lessons, and I'm going to just go through them between the tactical and the operational, and then a little bit strategic. Uh, but I think the overall lesson here is the importance of good intelligence. Uh, the Russians did not have good intelligence on Ukraine when they went in. And what they had had to be shaped to fit their own biases and narratives. Uh, and so they experienced great failure going into Ukraine. The, it also speaks to the weaknesses of autocracies because who is gonna tell Putin that he's full of shit? Nobody. <laughs> So it means everything has to be shaped to meet his desires. Um, that's kind of the big lesson is really, once again, reinforcing the importance of good intelligence on your adversary. Now, tactically, I think that um, just looking at, at what I've seen from the battles, we really, you know, the importance of tactical analysis, tactical level IPB, right down to the battalion level, um, being able to build a really detailed picture uh, for uh, your commander at that level, to be able to both unmask enemy deception measures at that level, to be able to assist. And one thing I don't think we teach well is how intelligence supports our own deception plan. And that has to happen from the bottom up. Uh, as well, I don't think that we necessarily teach how to break out a logistics chain and the importance of understanding how the enemy resupplies uh, himself, because obviously that has been a great um, strategic uh, enabler for the Ukrainians is to be able to attack the Russian logistics networks. So understanding that is critical. And I think, um, you know, and this should not be a surprise to anybody, we need to build the abilities to train these kinds of tactical level things ourselves because whenever we're on an exercise, we're supporting uh, the combat arms achieving battle task standards. We right. need our own battle lab to be able to do this uh, ourselves and run our own people through scenarios that really test uh, them. 
Um, second, uh, it's been very interesting to see uh, various emerging technologies like loitering munitions. I think it's really the first time we've really seen them uh, used in large numbers uh, in, in the battlefield. And that now is again, something that our tactical analysts need to take into account and when they're doing the right to be on the battlefield. Um, but also drones, you know, we've seen, you know, I've watched way too many hours of, you know, footage of Ukrainian drones flying around and, and watching Russians in their trenches. But we can see what happens when you have a denied airspace. Air defense on both sides is closed down the airspace. Even when uh, Russian or Ukrainian planes and helicopters are brought in now, you know, they're doing the approach the front line, point in general direction, spray and pray, move back. Mm -hmm. um, the Bayraktar was really hyped up at the beginning of the war, but yes, it has a role to play still, but it's marginal and it's not over the immediate battle space because uh, it's just too dangerous for it to fly there. So these commercially available drones are very important. And I think we need to consider those kinds of drones as consumables because they have a very short shelf life uh, due to Russian uh, counter drone defenses. I think I read somewhere the, the average drone lasts maybe three missions. So first you need to be able to then understand, you know, what the drone capabilities are and need to be able to IPB say, where can we sneak a drone in behind the enemy where can't we? Um, but you also need to have a procurement chain that can support those, you know, providing a constant flow of drones to the battle group. Our, our desire to always, you know, buy four of something and then hope nothing ever breaks is not going to cut it in this kind of warfare. Um, and then I'll go back, and this is, you know, back to my days as a young lieutenant in the reserves, a reserve EW squadron. I always felt that we under, uh, we did not understand EW well, we didn't use it well. And I think once again, EW in the battle space, uh, whether you're mimicking cell towers, whether you're um, using it against drones or air defense, uh, whether you're using it to collect intelligence, it's a huge part of the battle space in Ukraine. And we have not, um, I think, taken it on board as much as we should have uh, over the years. So these, I think, are, are important tactical lessons uh, of the war. Um, at the operational level, well, first of all, operational design campaign planning, obviously critical. The Russians had a poor operational design based on poor intelligence and based on their own prejudices going into Ukraine and their assumptions about how quickly Ukraine would fall. The Ukrainians had a much better campaign plan for last summer between synchronizing the offensives in Kharkiv and in Kherson, uh, the campaign plan uh, I thought was, was well done. But to my mind, what happened is Ukrainians lost momentum. The Russians were able to rush a lot of reserves in. Ukrainians lost momentum, and they're still trying to, to recover from that. Um, but again, it speaks to the importance at the operational level of those intelligence inputs into operational planning. If they're not right, if they're not good, um, we will build a very bad plan. Um, secondly, um, what we've seen is again, going back to the air defense problem, we have a denied battle space. 
looking further than say 10 kilometers behind the front is very challenging uh, when you can't put any even operational level assets because let's face it, we're not gonna fly any NATO operational assets uh, within an air defense environment. So that requires strategic national assets to look further behind the lines. And that means that you now to build a good tactical to operational picture, you need cooperation and you need to have the ability for the strategic to tactical to work together and for the strategic and operational levels, particularly to work together um, to see in depth behind the enemy's front lines. And here, um, I think, you know, something like the JTIC is very important um, in terms of its unique role uh, supported by CFINCOM and CJOC. Uh, I think that we need to kind of continue to look at how we integrate the various levels together, but it does speak to how important some of those national capabilities are even, you know, on the battlefield. Um, critical infrastructure. So one of the things we can't forget about is you know, when we do our, when we analyze enemy intentions, we think purely in terms of how are they going to achieve, uh, you know, seizing key terrain, um, avenues of approach, those kinds of things. But within our IPB, Critical infrastructure can be important objectives in and of themselves. Uh, seizing the North Crimean Canal, water canal, was very important for the Russians. Seizing the nuclear power plants, as many as they could, was critical for the Russians to deny the rump Ukrainian state any, you know, to be any independent power. Um, they seized the biggest nuclear power station in Europe uh, near Zaporizhia and Narodar, and they came within 35 kilometers of the South Ukrainian uh, nuclear power plant, which is in Mykolaiv Oblast. Um, and they came close to a few of the hydroelectric plants and you know, seized some like Novokokovka. Um, so there are uh, important, these are important objectives for the Russians. I mean, personally, I think that if they ever tried another, uh, say deception or um, diversion operation from Belarus, the Rivne power, nuclear power plant in Western Ukraine would be an obvious target for them to seize. So the role of critical infrastructure in IPB is also needs to be considered because these are sometimes not necessarily primary objectives, but certainly secondary objectives for the enemy. Um, and again, I think the importance of strategic and operational level coordination in terms of intelligence assessments. You know, one of the, obviously one of the biggest PIRs right now is when and where will the Russians counterattack? Mm -hmm. Will they counterattack? And you know, you need you know, at the operational level and down to tactical, you've got to have the ability to look at what are the are there any indicators on the battlefield of stockpiling of resources, movement of troops, preparations, um, those kinds of things. But then at the strategic level, we need to look at capacity. Um, what is happening at the strategic level to bring the train forces forward? Is there another echelon being trained? And the, like the two groups to build an assessment of will there be an offensive and where will it be? It really has to be a collaborative effort between the strategic and operational level to make that proper assessment. And I think those are, are uh, critical uh, lessons to take away from what I've seen so far. Um, the other one is, is OSINT. Obviously I've been an OSINT analyst uh, for the last uh, nine 
11 months. Um, and, you know, the war really began for me when I was sitting on the couch on the night of February 23rd. It was the morning of the 24th in Ukraine already. And I was I was scrolling, doom scrolling through my Twitter feed. And I saw one of the O-centers that I followed piped up with Russian long range aviation, high frequency nets are very active. And I looked over at my wife and said, well, looks like the cruise missiles are going to be launched in the next hour or so. <laughs> and and they were, and that's how the war began. Um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, would we have imagined that, you know, some OSINTRA summer would have the capacity, the ability to, you know, declare when Russian long range aviation is active? Um, no, you know, um, and when you, I look at OSINT kind of in, in sort of three waves. First wave is kind of the older OSINT. You're looking at newspaper articles, you know, academic journals, these kinds of things. Um, started to get into some blogging, you know, in the early 2000s. I remember uh, watching um, uh, the situation in Serbia when Milosevic was being overthrown. Uh, Radio B92 had a blog uh, on their website, and that was my, that was what I was watching to find out live to the minute what was going on in central Belgrade. Uh, but that was pretty limited back then. Then we got into what I call the second wave of, so, of, of, of OSINT, which really became much more focused on social media, social media exploitation, reaching out, basically, you know, looking at what poor OPSEC other people have and, and taking advantage of it uh, and the like, a lot of that. Now we're seeing OSINT um, is much more than that. Now we're seeing lots of analysis on OSINT. There are I'm following one guy who does, you know, the daily Ukraine meteorological report with weather effects matrices attached to it. Um, I follow a couple other folks uh, at Netherland War Tracker um, is one of them who they're buying commercial satellite imagery and they're analyzing it. They, they've identified, you know, transshipment points where Russian trains are pulling into villages and being ammunition being offloaded and, and identifying warehouses where it would be and posting all this on Twitter. Um, Guys who are, you know, breaking out in great detail, Russian defensive lines throughout all of that with satellite imagery they purchased. Um, so obviously that reinforces the need for OPSEC even more for us. Uh, but it also, you know, is is very important. I think in terms of our analysis, we're not going to drop a missile on a target on the basis of something that some, you know. Twitter OSINT analyst uh, did of commercial satellite imagery. However, can we use that to cue our own targeting work potentially? I think there's a lot to be expanded there. And with that, obviously all the regular tradecraft has to be applied. You have to analyze each source of information. How good is it? Uh, I got burned a few times where I was following someone and they turned out to be, they were never I quickly figured out who was the Russian troll, who wasn't, but some of these guys were not reliable reporters. Um, and so you, uh, you know, you have to apply your tradecraft and your understanding of, of sources and methods to be able to understand what out there in the OSINT world is uh, reliable and what is not. And complementing that is so many people out there walking around the streets, I know, of Ukraine. You know, you want to do BDA on a, on a Russian strike. Well, you've got 15 people posting very quickly what happened on that site. Um, and all kinds of people in Ukraine who are just blogging and posting and, and 
on YouTube and everything else who are, you know, have little snippets of information that can be of use, uh, but you have to track a lot of it over a long period of time. So, you know, the OSINT piece has become huge, I think, within this uh, uh, war and particularly that, that bit of analysts doing analysis uh, that's so unique. Um, so I'll stop right there for the first question before I go on for too long. Okay, sir, that was awesome. Um, some fascinating insights. Uh, you know, one of the things I took out of uh, your discussions there, a theme throughout, really was how important the basics of IPUE are, uh, tactical, operational, strategic, burden sharing, uh, you know, even on the OSINT piece, really, that comes down to a good, solid, uh, basic work in terms of our tradecraft and how we do business. Also, that we all need to be a little bit better about in the in terms of how how we employ UAVs. Like this, obviously, is something we all need to know and understand more. And uh, the EWP is absolutely critical for our future success. So that's an investment we have to make uh, throughout the force. But uh, you know, coming back to the point of you know, uh, basics are key to uh, success and IPUE is really, really important. Probably we underemphasize it in our training um, and focus too much on uh, doing the fancy things. So my next question is, uh, what surprised you about the Ukraine conflict uh, that has caused you to reflect on how we evaluate information and manage bias? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I was thinking about this and and I kicked myself. I've, I've, been, I've been kicking myself because I fell into the trap that I'm going to describe here. Um, the first thing is when a, when a narrative is established and becomes accepted, it's so hard to change that narrative. So what do I mean by that in the Ukrainian context? Well, from 2014, and just with kind of the way the Russians took over Crimea, and then what they did in the east of Ukraine, um, the narrative was established that the Ukrainians are not, the Ukrainian army is weak, uh, not very capable, does not have good equipment. Uh, the Ukrainian state itself is corrupt and not particularly strong. Ukraine is driven by internal dissension uh, and the, um, and penetrated fully by the Russians. The Russian army, on the other hand, has hybrid warfare nailed down. Uh, it has the ability to um, conduct massed fires supported by UAVs, all this stuff. So the Russian army is just like unbelievably good. The Ukrainians are no good. And, and, and you know, when I look back, I remember going to visit Defense Intelligence Ukraine and meeting with their analysts and walking away really impressed with how strong and solid they were. And not just in terms of their knowledge, but how they were approaching intelligence, how they were approaching improving their own organization, not just latching on to, oh, we're gonna take the American model. They were looking at all the allies and taking what they felt would work best from for them, from each of them and comparing and contrasting. And I was really impressed with that. And then, you know, I look back on <clears throat> the great volunteer effort that went to support the Ukrainian army in 2014 in the east of the country. This was self-mobilization of the population and people just running out there. And, and when you think about it, a bunch of civilians with AKs uh, in Scooby-Doo vans helped stop 
the Russian advance that summer. Um, they've had an important role to play in that. These um, battalions that were mobilized. And so at the, at the same time, we kind of underrated our own contribution through off unifier and the various training missions in Ukraine. You know, we obviously thought we did a poor job of training, you know, and, and again, the narrative. I remember when the first rotation of op unifier went in, they were horrified, you know, at the, uh, at the range safety or lack thereof, um, you know, but that was 2014, 2015. Now we're looking at 2021, 2022. That's, not a huge amount of time, but it's still enough time to make major changes. So I think once that narrative was established, it was really hard to change that narrative. And again, it raises the question for intelligence professionals, how do we ensure that there's always someone asking the question, is that still the case? Is that still the case? Um, because now there's a new narrative. The plucky Ukrainians keep handing the Russians their butts. And the Russians couldn't organize their way, for, couldn't organize a piss up in a brewery. That's sort of the new narrative. But here's the thing. The Ukrainians do make mistakes. They have gotten their butts kicked tactically on the battlefield. Uh, they've had bad commanders, made bad decisions that have let their battalions into disaster. Um, so that is near, So that, that's not necessarily the case that they're so great. They're, they're doing amazing work, but they will make mistakes, obviously. The Russians, you know, I think their ability to conduct major combined arms operations is, is severely degraded. Uh, that said, A, we know that they're training a whole bunch of formations back in Russia right now, preparing them. They didn't, all these people are mobilized in the fall. They didn't all rush into Ukraine. Also, the Russians, even if they can't do great combined arms work, you know, they if they're willing to pay the price, they could bludgeon their way to a victory. Not a pretty victory, but they could bludgeon their way to a victory. So we need to be very careful right now not, not to go the opposite way and overestimate the Ukrainians and underestimate the Russians. Because I think the, the danger is not just that uh, what happens on the battlefield, but if the Russians, the, the morale effect on the West and Ukraine, if the Russians were to have a very successful counterattack, or if a Ukrainian counteroffensive using Western weapons failed, I think the morale attack would be huge uh, and perhaps disproportionate to the actual effects on the battlefield. So we need to be careful, I think, from a public information operations perspective in terms of these narratives. But as intelligence professionals, you always we always need to ensure that we have a way of challenging the governing wisdom at any given time, uh, because you know we will be wrong. <laughs> yes. um, the other thing I think is that um, again, just flowing from that, uh, sometimes we extrapolate too much. Um, you know, in Ukraine, it was the old Russian-Ukrainian divide. Um, you know, Russian speakers in the East all want to be part of Russia. Uh, Ukrainian speakers in the West all want to be part of uh, the EU. Well, it was a lot more complex than that. Um, but we tended to simplify that. You know, let's face it, the, the president, uh, you know, learned, um, you know, more recently how to speak good Ukrainian. Uh, there's a whole, in his TV show, Servant of the People, which was the most popular TV show in Ukraine, it was in Russian. Uh, and in fact, there's a funny scene in the first episode where where the president has to learn how to speak a 
to give a speech in Ukrainian and he can't pronounce anything right. So his aide puts two walnuts in his mouth and then he can speak proper Ukrainian, the good pronunciation. Um, you know, the, the number of Russian speakers that I have heard who are Ukrainian nationalists uh, is many because there's a variety of reasons why people spoke Russian instead of Ukrainian. And it was too simplified. And even, even many of the people in the East who had closer links with Russia and had maybe a favorable view of Russia, that favorable view didn't extend to, oh, and please come and invade us. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we have to be very careful when we're analyzing at the strategic level uh, that we try to bring these nuances into things. Because again, the, the, the tendency is to, to oversimplify. Um, and a lot of people fell into this trap. And to a certain extent, so did I. So, you know, guilty is guilty of anyone on this one. And then I think we can't um, overlook society itself um, and the capacity of that society. Uh, again, this is something that, you know, we look at count tanks, count artillery pieces, but it was the fact, you know, again, Ukrainian society had a great capacity for self-organizing, whether it was to aid refugees, whether it was to... Um, provide additional help to soldiers on the front, to raising money, uh, to just going out there and spreading the word uh, to people in the world. That volunteerism, that civil society has been a real force multiplier for the Ukrainians. And you know how do we need to ensure that when we look at a society, we analyze it, that piece as part of our military strategic IPOE of any country and really look at it because if you don't have that, um, if the country is truly driven, you know, driven by 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 uh, hatreds and 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 discontent, that will have one effect. But you know, if the country is more resilient, that's another effect. And so I think again here we've underestimated the Ukrainians uh, and didn't look at that aspect of the problem enough. Certainly the Russians did it; they totally got that wrong. And they continue to get it wrong because they still think that they can destroy the, you know, turn out the lights and uh, the Ukrainians will fold like a cheap lawn chair. But that's not the case. Mm -hmm. So those are, I think that's that's where I'll stop on that question. Sir, yeah, again, thanks. So I, I guess one of the things that uh, uh, I kind of worry about is you talked about the narrative of uh, in the next, you know, 12 months or even a few months. Uh, we could underestimate the Russians, but I also worry about uh, where we're going to be in five years and 10 years and 15 years um, as we see evolutions of uh, the Russian army. Do we continue to underestimate them based on this experience and overestimate our own capabilities? And uh, I think we, we need to be as honest and uh, as critical as we can in order to get the best answer as we go forward. And, and I would also like to say just about the Ukrainian piece, I mean, one of the things that has impressed me is their rapid innovation, um, like amazing uh, capabilities that they brought in the social space to the arms uh, space, um, and again, significantly underestimated by the Russians. So it's been an amazing um, opportunity for us to all learn how uh, Little things make such a big, big difference. And I'll just add there again, you know, Mia culpa. I mean, I visited their 
Ero Rozovic, uh, their, their air intelligence unit, which uh, was in Western Kyiv uh, years ago. And this was, you know, some guy who'd made a bunch of money in finance, decided to, to raise this unit. They had a bunch of young kids who wore a uniform during the day. I think they were in the army, maybe not, I don't know. Um, but they were all doing one thing. They had set up their own little um, I-Star I center and they had linked up uh, video cameras all along the line of control that all reported back to one central hub and they could zoom in. They had, they had set all this up themselves and they were building you know, quadcopters, octocopters in the back that they were using again to, and this was all a bottom-up initiative, but also a lot of highly technical stuff. And they were eagerly seeking out, um, you know, collection management expertise, high-star expertise to assist them in doing this. And some of these kids were like 18, 19 years old and they're doing all this. So I, again, that is that that should have cued me in to, there's more going on here um, uh, than meets the eye at first and, and, and to challenge that bias I, that I had. Right, that's brilliant. So the next uh, and last question is, uh, are there any key inflection points that could cause a significant change in the way forward? Well, I think, I think the biggest one, so the concern about Western support, um, I think this last, the last few weeks have, have shown that, that the Western countries are really going in all in to support Ukraine right now. Um, big strong IO message there. Uh, but it's going to take time for the Ukrainians to take on board that Western equipment. And my own rough math right now says that there's enough of it coming in to kind of create a, a mechanized brigade of Western equipment kind of in the next two to three months, and then maybe in, in a second brigade kind of four or five months down the road. But that's really, you know, we have about two brigades worth of equipment right now is what I'm seeing. Um, the Ukrainians have 25 mechanized brigades right now. So I think it will be very important, but not necessarily decisive. But, um, I think artillery ammunition right now is huge. Mm -hmm. I think that the lack, High Mars was obviously huge um, in terms of really complicating the Russians' logistical system. Um, and they've had to move all, all their command posts, all their logistics just out of High Mars range. But now they figured out how to work that. And so the Ukrainians need something longer range than HIMARS that's still precision that can get at those. Um, and with a view to looking towards what's gonna happen in the next few months, I believe the Russians are gonna try to launch an offensive before the Ukrainians get set up with all this Western equipment and they complete their, you know, cause it's not just receiving the equipment, it's training on the equipment, training on the employment of the equipment, training on how to conduct combined arms operations with that equipment. Um, that's, that's, that's a bit tall order for any country in just a couple, two to three months. But the Russians are gonna to try to take advantage of that, I think, to launch an offensive to hoping that that will demoralize the Ukrainians and will show that the Western equipment didn't help and thereby demoralize the West and the like. I think they really feel they need to get that in before all that happens. So then the question becomes, so that's one inflection point. If the Russians can do that successfully, I think that would, even a partially successful Russian offensive would have a huge morale effect on the Ukrainians, on the West. That could be a, a major inflection point. 
Conversely, the Ukrainians need to be able to try to disrupt the preparations for that offensive. I don't think they can preempt it, but um, they need to be able to disrupt it and disrupt the preparations for it. And for that, I think they do need longer range weapons. And you know what? People are talking F-16s. That's that's nice. They're, they're good for DCA right now, but that's just about it. What the Ukrainians really need is longer range uh, precision fires. And they also need um, artillery ammunition, lots and lots of artillery ammunition. Because one thing this war has, and I think as a, as a gunner, former gunner, Dave, you'll, you'll, you'll like this, uh, is that the guns are still the queen of the battlefield. You know, um, no, nothing else can deliver the weight of firepower in as quick a succession as the guns. You know, a Reaper, five, six missiles, that's nice. How long did it take you to get that one Reaper onto that station and for it to find the target? How many rounds can a battery of artillery fire in the amount of time it took you to get the Reaper there uh, and the resources behind that Reaper? So artillery ammunition is going to be key. Uh, right now, there's a lot of talk about ammunition shortages on the Russian side. Personally, I think the Russians are husbanding ammunition so that when they do launch their offensive, they can have a significant weight of fire at the critical points. And I think we'll see everything thrown into that. Uh, the Russian Air Force will come out again. They'll, they'll throw everything at this counteroffensive um, to really try to, um, again, get that morale effect, uh, hit the Ukrainians on the, on the moral plane. Um, and conversely, the Ukrainians, if they launch a massive, if they manage to survive the Russian offensive and then launch their own, if it's not successful, I don't know, that could be an inflection point as well, because I don't know what else the West have has to give them to try for another one. So it becomes really uh, difficult for the Ukrainians to make sure they get that offensive right, because if it doesn't go right, um, don't know what else is in the tank. Right. Yeah. It was, yeah. So those are my thoughts right now. That's, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. So I, I would say that, uh, you know, so the Russian army is an artillery army with tanks. And uh, the key to success with artillery is actually logistics. I think that's a point yeah. for us to take home as well. Um, you know, we have uh, artillery in, in Latvia, but if you don't have the, <laughs> the trucks and the people to get the ammunition to the guns, uh, there's really no, and you need the ammunition there and you need the trucks. Yeah. So there's Absolutely. 10 parts to it. And I, I think that Russia suffers on both of that, both those points as well. And and uh, that's an opportunity for the Ukraine also um, to take advantage of uh, the Russians yeah. definitely have hit uh, the Ukrainians hard uh, with sabotage and uh, significantly impacted their ability to have uh, sufficient quantities of ammunition as well. Absolutely. And, you know, but, but here's a fun fact. Um, the Russian logistics system has not discovered the pallet. Um, so they don't do palletized loads in the Russian army. Everything is hand carried um, mm -hmm. and hand offloaded off trucks. So, you know, their logistics system is, is, is quite the mess, uh, even when they have a lot of ammunition. But that also then speaks to, you know, and this is outside the, the bounds of kind of this discussion, but how we've led our capacity for um, storage and manufacture of munitions uh, fall in the West right. and uh, as, as cost savings. and uh, yeah, you know, as soon as you start firing, uh, you're going to be firing a lot and it's mm -hmm. going to go quickly.
as yeah. we've discovered or rediscovered now, rediscovered. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So we're we're at about 39 minutes right now, and I can't help but think that it would be uh, great if we could take a couple questions if they're uh, yeah. if they're out there. Uh, I saw Alain had a had his hand up uh, earlier, so we can start with, with Alain. Hey, Ars, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, uh, thanks for uh, first of all, uh, congratulations on your blog. This is extremely insightful. Uh, I, I keep track thanks. as much uh, as possible with other open sources, and you know, uh, I agree with you. Open sources have become a gold mine in terms of security awareness for uh, for everybody, and uh, certainly when I teach the young privates and couples at the school make them aware of this becoming a very important discipline that should not, not be discounted. Uh, we're talking towards the end of the first portion here about the influx of Western material, especially the news coming uh, in the last couple of days about the uh, leopards and M1A1 coming into the country. What I felt in this time, maybe you'll be able to have a little bit more of an insight, is that why does the Russian targeting cycle is not focused on what's coming just across the border? I mean, uh, why did they, do, they don't dedicate more of the position, position munition, uh, high, uh, uh, loitering munition, uh, long-range missiles towards targeting that? Because uh, I, national tactical means or even tactical uh, selection means, I mean, an M1A1 on a flatbed is not easy to camouflage or dissimulate. Same thing for uh, a Leopard 1A2. Why don't they target as soon as they cross the border? Because they're going to have logistical hubs. Uh, Ukraine is going to have logistical concentration of Western equipment right across the border. Why do they do that? Yeah, that's a great question, Alain. You know, obviously, like, as, as you know, in professionals, we all immediately think of that is like that is a choke point. That is a, a critical vulnerability. And I think one of the one of the underreported success stories of Western support to Ukraine is just how well. Uh, they have continued to maintain that support to Ukraine and have maintained secrecy over that support to Ukraine. Um, to answer your question, I think uh, one of the things is that there's a lot of routes into Ukraine from a lot of different countries. So you can ship things in via a variety of routes and observing and targeting all of them uh, is tough. The Russians did try to go after some of these uh, routes early on in their campaign. Uh, they attacked certain railway tunnels uh, where they believe supplies are coming through. Uh, they hit railways in the West. But I think what's happened is that they just, they don't have good ISR over the area. Um, I don't think their satellite capabilities are particularly good. Um, and I don't think that they, they don't have the people on the ground or other means to observe uh, the area to get that kind of detailed targeting information, nor do they have um, real-time ability to engage should they get information about something. So I think they were, initially, they were targeting the ability of the Ukrainians, you know, in, try to interdict the routes uh, that were coming in, but not necessarily able to actually attack uh, specific targets. Uh, you know, they did try a, a few of those early on, but also they're just running out of cruise missiles, uh, they're running out of um, Shahed drones, which are junk, uh, and they just don't have the reach to get in there uh, and, and attack. Again, that's you know, the success of the air defense meant that the Russian Air Force, if the Ukrainian air defense uh, was not as robust as it is, 
and the Russians could have moved forward their air force, I think if the air force was flying around Western Ukraine, it would have been very difficult for the West to get these uh, supplies in, in the way they are right now. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense under that perspective. Uh, I wonder as the situation more becomes more and more dire, especially if the Russians fail their presumed upcoming offensive, whether or not they can might be a redirection towards uh, towards those assets again and become a high value target. And uh, yeah. again, you're right. I mean, uh, air security is key to that. And if yeah. they, can, they can dedicate they can dedicate assets either for uh, fixed wing or otherwise. Uh, they're not going to be able to accomplish that, and they, uh, they uh, Russian Ukrainians are going to be successful in getting what they want. Yeah, yeah. I think um, again, I just don't think they have the capacity to really reach out there very effectively. Okay, thanks for that. So maybe we can take uh, one more one more question. If uh, there's one out there, somebody wants to put one up in the chat or. Um, maybe just jump in. That's great, actually, because Nobody. I like. Oh, was there somebody? Oh yeah, we got we got one more. Okay. Yeah. Just I, um, yeah. Uh, good evening. Thank you um, uh, for taking the question. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe um, speak to. Um, I, I guess perhaps within the role of intelligence and good intelligence, uh, the lack of OPSEC and, and sort of capitalizing on the lack of OPSEC um, on the Russian side and how that's kind of played into the conflict. Well, you know, I think we just, I think we've seen a whole bunch of examples of, of poor OPSEC on the part of the Russians. Um, they're very quick with their cameras in particular, um, very quick to show where they are. Uh, I think, you know, there was a case uh, last summer where <clears throat> a reporter was, uh, thought it'd be great to have uh, a background of uh, a 2S9 Nona firing behind him uh, while he was giving his report. And um, literally within, within a couple hours of that, report being out there the open source folks had geolocated that spot i mean that it's like geolocation is a game amongst the o-centers out there they love going out there and seeing who can first geolocate something off the least amount of information that's there um and so you know you, you gotta be very careful what you publish extremely careful what imagery gets published and those ukrainians do a lot of masking a lot of really close in shots uh, they're very very careful uh, about this, particularly if it's something that is, is time sensitive. Um, there was another great example of OPSEC breach where people thought, oh, this isn't gonna be a problem. A couple of Russian soldiers in Donetsk were handling ammunition in a big warehouse. That warehouse uh, turned out to be a, a hockey rink in Donetsk. And what I understand one of the Ukrainians from, who was from Donetsk said, I recognize that arena because they took the picture inside the arena, but it was obvious if you were from that area, what it looked like. He said, I know what that building is. That's the hockey arena in Donetsk. And that hockey arena was visited by Mr. Heimars not long thereafter. Um, 
So, you know, you know, they would have thought we're inside a building. How are they going to figure it out? Well, there you are. So, you know, it, it, it is very, very hard to have pure OPSEC. I mean, even on our side, it's, it's challenging. I think our, but our soldiers are better trained uh, and care more. Uh, and, you know, your average Russian conscript is not at the same caliber. And so it's much harder to get them to uh, observe more OPSEC. I don't know if that answers the question, but, you know. Yeah, I appreciate um, it. Thank you. Yeah. No, I think uh, just, again, we need to be always very cognizant that uh, any photo that is taken of us and published, um, the background can say a lot. And, and there are a lot of people out there who can very quickly figure out where you are based on the background of your shot. And that's just one of the, uh, I know I, you know, again, open source, I've seen heat maps of cell phone usage, you know, that's tied to the Russian network, all kinds of things like this that are out and available now, let alone what the classified sources are. So there's a lot of things that are, that are a give. Um, I, I see a question here in the chat about if OSINT's effective, how can you get it to the anti-Putin factions in Russia to weaken the support? Um, the problem, well, just the Russians are concerned about this. Just um, today, they were shutting down Medusa, uh, which was a Russian news source, kind of an opposition news source uh, that anybody who at all had different opinions from the regime uh, would go to. And now that's been declared, I believe, a, a foreign agent or, or something along those lines. And so just you know, passing a link to one of their articles uh, is now a criminal offense. That said, there's not a lot of, like, like there's nobody to give it to. There's not a lot of anti-Putin opposition in Russia. Those who are, are cowed and they're keeping their mouths shut and their heads down. Most of those who were truly opposed left the country and the vast majority of Russians support the war. That's just, that's just where we are right now. Perfect, sir. That's the, thanks. Um, so I, I know people who play the uh, the you know find me in the world game. It's uh, it's been going on for many many years. Uh, I think it's very popular at Sifjik as well. Actually, I would hope so. It's you know right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so here comes the hard questions uh, for you, and I'll start with the hardest one. Um, uh, so if you could tell us, uh, what's your favorite movie just to get to know you a little bit better as we, uh, we do this fireside chat. Um, you know, I, uh, I think my favorite movies have changed over time. I don't have a favorite movie, mm. uh, but I'll say I have a genre, one kind of movie that I seem to have developed a real liking for. And that's when there's a problem and people are adults and they have to work through the problem to solve it. So I have watched Apollo 13 and The Martian like more times than I can uh, can think of because uh, I I like those uh, so much. But you know, I my, what I really love is the uh, long TV streaming uh, right now. I mean, I think that Better Call Saul is probably the best television that was ever made, and uh, the cameraman for that, the cinematographer, was a a Hopper fan, uh, American painter Hopper. Uh, you know, just brilliant. So that that's, I'd say, my favorite TV show, Better Call Saul. Okay, perfect. Uh, Ron Howard, brilliant director for Apollo 13 as well. So great cinematography as well, right? Absolutely, absolutely. 
Yeah. So uh, next question is, uh, what book are you currently reading? Well, let's just say that my um, range of literature and books has narrowed uh, somewhat. Um, I did just finish uh, Lawrence Friedman's uh, 800 pages of Command, his book Command, which was very useful, uh, particularly for my teaching at Canadian Forces College. Um, but most of my reading has to do with Russia and Ukraine right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just finished um, Andre Kirchhoff's uh, Diary of an Invasion. Uh, thank you, Kara. Uh, um, Andre Kirchhoff uh, is a Ukrainian writer, a very good writer. Uh, and he uh, has basically been writing a diary since the start of an invasion and uh, really, really good observations throughout uh, on the war and the like. And the interesting thing about him is that he's actually Russian. Uh, his, his dad was a Russian Soviet pilot who was moved to Hostomel, west of Kiev, um, to work on the Antonovs. And Andrei Kirchhoff grew up in Ukraine. Uh, he's an ethnic Russian. He writes in Russian. He's the most famous Ukrainian novelist right now. And he's a huge Ukrainian patriot and wants the Russians out of the country. And his elderly brother was actually across the street from the Hostomel airfield when the VDV landed. <laughs> um, so uh, he had a front row seat to that. So anyways, I think he's a, he's a really good writer. And um, I, I read one of his earlier books, Death in the Penguin, about 1990s Ukraine, um, where the premise is this guy's adopted a penguin from the zoo because the zoo can't afford it. And uh, the penguin lives in his apartment with him, um, which is an interesting concept, a little bit of the theater of the absurd. Uh, but anyways, he also, Kirchhoff really represents, I think, some of the complexities of ethnicity and language in Ukraine and why that narrative of Russian speakers, Russians in the East, Ukrainian, Ukrainian speakers in the West, you know, it's, it's so much more complex than that. Right. And obviously, uh, it, it sounds obvious to you. You do recommend his book then, um, worth, of, worth the time? It's, it's worth the time, yeah. Okay. So uh, last question, um, you know, given this is a public forum, keep that in mind. Um, if you have something that uh, most people don't know about you, but uh, you would like to share. Um, well, okay, sure. I don't know. I mean, I think this might not, this might be more knowledge than I think people have for me. I think okay. people, more people know this than maybe I think, but okay. uh, I'm a very avid fly fisherman. and. Nice. Uh, and I do a lot of fly fishing. Um, now, that's to say, it doesn't mean I'm a good fly fisherman. <laughs> um, some days I've caught more tree branches than fish, but uh, anyways, I'm a very dedicated to at least attempting to catch the trout. So that's uh, that's my thing there. Oh, that, that's that's amazing. Probably a great way, way to clear the mind as well, I would imagine. Yes, yes. Um, uh, actually, and that is one of the things, you know, it's like one of those activities where when you're doing it, you're so focused on it because I'm not in a boat. I fish, you know, I'm standing in the middle of rapids, sometimes up to my chest, uh, wading through rapids in a river. And when you're doing it, you're not thinking about anything else. You're just thinking about where am I standing? Am I going to drown? And <laughs> how do I avoid that? And, you know, where are the fish? At what location? What depth? what presentation, what fly to use, um, all kinds of things. That's You're just so focused on that. 
that you're able to clear your mind of everything else. Perfect. Sir, uh, thank you very much. Uh, this has been an, <laughs> an extremely interesting talk. Um, I, I, you know, I'm really glad to have this kind of uh, quality content that we can add to our professional development piece on the CMIA side, because I think it's this type of high quality discussion that's uh, going to keep bringing people back and watching and listening. And uh, yeah, so uh, I really appreciate the, the effort and the time you took tonight. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Uh, for those who follow my blog, I'm hoping to have, I've been remiss for the last uh, few weeks, been busy in doing other stuff. Uh, so, so my one man ASIC here has not been able to keep up, but um, I'm gonna try to get something out to tomorrow tomorrow for sure. Uh, and I saw Alain ask a question about whether I can share the sites uh, that I consult for, for keeping SA up. I will try to uh, make more mention within my blogs of some of the sites that I go to, but let's just say that my main source is a whole bunch of people who post on Twitter. Um, you know, everything from Ukrainian newspapers and journalists to Westerners, but Twitter is the, the, the main place I go. But there's just too many things that I, too many things I subscribe to to mention them all at once. But I will try to mention some of the, the, the ones I rely on more within the blog. So that if someone wants to follow that, they can. Perfect. Well, thank you very much and uh, good night. No, thank you. I uh, I really need to log off. It's uh, almost 2 a.m. here in Wiesbaden. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I've got work tomorrow. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Okay, and, thanks. Uh, good night. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.